Nicole is a member of the bridge, and uh, she is on staff with Navigators, and the bridge supports uh, Nicole's ministry, and there's a great example of how the church is a movement, and God is still sending his people today, and um, thank you, Nicole, for your willingness to go, and to go and to represent Jesus well. Going to dismiss Bridge Kids. Thank you for joining us for worship. Everybody who is in this room will be in Acts chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 17 through 42 as opposition to the church builds. Acts chapter 5. Please open a Bible if you have one or the old smartphone. Here we go. Ajith Fernando, in his book entitled The Call to Joy and Pain, gave a very uh, important, uh, gave this very important thought-provoking perspective. Here's what he wrote in his book. The church in each culture has its own special challenges, theological blind spots that hinder Christians from growing to full maturity in Christ. I think one of the most serious theological blind spots in the Western church is a defective understanding of suffering. This this is a challenge for us. He goes on to say, There seems to be a lot of reflection on how to avoid suffering, on what to do when we hurt. We have a lot of teaching about escape from suffering and therapy for suffering, but there is inadequate teaching about the theology of suffering. He continues, quote-unquote, the good life, comfort, convenience, and a painless life have become necessities that people view as basic rights. If they do not have these, they think something has gone wrong. One of the results of this attitude is a severe restriction of spiritual growth. For God intends us to grow through trials. What do you think of that? Most of you know that that's kind of a biblical thought. But how many of us really like comfort and sort of think it's wrong to have to go through pain? I believe Ajith Fernando is right. Because we are the Western church and we have theological blind spots. We do not have an accurate theology of suffering. Like the Apostle Peter. Like the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5, the opposition to the gospel continues to build. In Acts 1, Jesus ascended into heaven. Remember that? And he gave instructions to his followers. He said, you shall be my witnesses. And it's going to start in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In Acts 2, they received the gift of the Holy Spirit that had been promised to all believers in Christ. And then Peter got up, and he gave his first major sermon on the streets of Jerusalem, and 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. In Acts 3, Peter and John went to the temple 
at the hour of prayer. And they encountered a man that had been lame from birth and was placed there to beg. And um, Peter healed this man by the power of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And that spurred a lot of excitement in the temple area. And in Acts 4, Peter and John were seized and put in jail overnight. And they appeared before the Sanhedrin. And they were ordered not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus anymore. And they were released and the church continued to grow. And the church had one heart and one mind. And 5,000 men came to faith in Christ plus women and children. In Acts 5, a husband and wife lied to the church and lied to the leaders of the Holy Spirit. And God removed them very quickly. The good news about Jesus in Acts 5 continued to spread and many miracles took place to show that God was at work and that God was attracting attention uh, to his messengers and to his message. And when God is up to something big and he's doing a lot of miracles around them, there's always a purpose to those miracles and they point to something. That's exactly what was happening in the book of Acts. Pay attention to God's leaders, his messengers, and pay attention to their message. So that brings us to our passage today. Uh, We're going to start in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. And I just want to read the first four verses in Acts chapter 5. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail again. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. So if you follow on your outline, first of all, they are sent to detention. The apostles are sent to detention, and the opposition uh, begins to build And the reason is this, in verse 17, is the religious leaders were enraged. Look at 17. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees, I want to remind you who they are, they were filled with jealousy. So the Sadducees were religious leaders, very important. They were mostly members of the priesthood, so they're from the tribe of Levi, That's where the high priests come from out of this group. They are more liberal in theology. The word Sadducee isn't in the Bible except in the New Testament to describe these people. So it's not like God said, made up this word, Sadducee, or made this group. Um, Sadducees don't believe in angels, they don't believe in miracles, and they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Just like a lot of people today. Just, they're skeptics, religious skeptics. The other main group of the day, the other group of religious leaders that were very significant, one of those terms you hear about in the Gospels, is Pharisee. They were the religious conservatives. They did believe in angels. They did believe in miracles. And they did believe in the resurrection of the dead. The high priest was a Sadducee. And that is sad, you see. 
the apostles had become extremely popular. Just think about this. Everybody's listening to the apostles. People are coming to faith. They're questioning the beliefs, many of them, that had been taught. And they're learning about this new Jesus. They're learning about the Messiah, the promised one in the Old Testament. And they're seeing miracles and people's lives are being changed. And the high priest is losing popularity. The, the opinion polls show him that he's losing fast. And the, the high priest and his associates have become jealous. Jealousy is an intense envy over the success of another. Jealousy is one of those values that drives the American economy. Jealousy is not one of those values that drives God's economy. Jealousy is one of those things that dishonors God and devalues people. Do you ever deal with jealousy when other people are more popular or more attractive or have the nicer house or they got the promotion or they always get better grades? Jealousy is a real issue for we who follow Christ that we just need to be honest with God about, honest with ourselves Verse 18, the apostles are arrested. They arrested the apostles and they put them in the public jail. So the high priest and the, their, his associates believe they're doing good. They are jealous, but they believe they're jealous for God. They believe that they have a righteous anger. Uh, they believe they're doing good for God. In fact, they are working against God. And I think this is really easy for Christians to do sometimes. Sometimes Christians get angry and they think it's righteous angry, righteous anger and that they're sort of doing it because they're so passionate about uh, godly things. And often it's not. Often it's just about some stuff deep inside of us that makes us angry and defensive. And we sometimes speak out of the name of Christianity and we look so foolish sometimes. So the apostles... Uh, are put in prison, and it's not just Peter and John, it's all of them. And we see verse 19, During the night an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Does God have a sense of humor? Because the Sadducees don't believe in angels. And all 12 of the apostles are released. The high priests and the Sadducees don't know what to do. And um, the apostles are released. The gospel is advanced, verse 20 and 21. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. Jesus' instructions continue. You shall be my witnesses. You got sidetracked a little bit. You got thrown in jail a little bit. That's okay. We're going to get back on course. And um, this is not unusual when God is doing something new and big that he does things like send angels. Because all through the life of Jesus, when God... God was announcing something big or doing something big, navigating through culture. He brought a messenger from heaven to communicate about it. That's how he announced um, the birth of Jesus. That's how he announced the empty tomb. And so 
God sends uh, an angel and to get them back in the t- back on track. Go stand in the temple courts. Interesting, temple courts, what's that all about? Well, that's the center of the Jewish religion. God wants the people of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, to hear this message very clearly. He wants to give them every opportunity. At daybreak, verse 21, they entered the temple courts, and they had as they had been told, and they began to teach the people. So the apostles continue on their mission to help people understand the good news of the gospel. It says that they taught the people. They didn't just stand up, and I like the way Nicole talked about, they just didn't give them the bullet points of the gospel. They taught, they explained, they answered questions. They talked about what Jesus had taught. And they explained the words that Jesus taught, as well as how the Old Testament scriptures fit in. Because the gospel doesn't make sense until someone explains it. And they were to tell the people about this new life. Regarding that life, Jesus gave these words in John 10.10. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy And he was referring to the enemy. He was referring to the evil one. He was referring to Satan. And he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus' purpose for coming was so that people would have life and that they would have it to the full. God's desire is for us to have his life and to have it to the full. We get confused sometimes because we think that means lots of things and no pain and and a great life, at least that fits in with the American dream kind of thing. That's not exactly what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about a life, eternal life, that doesn't begin at death. Some people get confused about that. No, it begins now. It begins very instant. You place your faith in Christ. It's a new life. It's a spiritual life. It connects us with God. It's something we didn't have before. And it enables us to have a relationship with God and have a quality of life we've never had before. And when he's given us resources so that when we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can have strength and ability and enablement to do the things that he wants us to do. And the amazing thing is, in the midst of all of that, we can have joy. That's kind of irrational, because some of the things we have to, that God calls us to do are hard, and yet he says you can have joy and peace and patience, and your character can change and become gentle and kind, and you can become a faithful person. In John fourteen six, Jesus said this. He said, I am the way and the truth And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus personified the life. And um, he is the offer of life and the giver of life. And he is the way to that life. And it was his life that he laid down for us to take our place that makes it possible for us to have a way to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through him. In John 11, Jesus went to Lazarus' grave, a passage we've looked at recently, and he spoke to uh, Margaret, Lazarus' sister, in John 11:25. 25. 
Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And there it is again. He's, he hasn't even been experienced resurrection yet, but he's just about to uh, in a week. And words like this are going to be very powerful in a week right now. But what Jesus is about to do, he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead and give Lazarus a new physical life. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he, they die. There's going to be life after the grave. There's life that begins with faith and there's life after death. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Eternal life. Do you believe this? That's what he says to Margaret. That's a great question for us. Do you believe that? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, who he is? He is the Son of God. He is equal with the Father. He laid down his life. He died on the cross. He paid the penalty for sin. And by faith, if you respond to him, he will forgive your sins and give you eternal life. And Jesus said, do you believe this? If you do... You know, right now, your sins are forgiven. If you do, right now, you have eternal life. And no one can take you out of the Father's hands. No one. You can't. The enemy can't. No one can. Secondly, verses 21 through 28. The apostles now are going to be placed on trial. So the apostles are supposed to be in jail, but they are not. They have been ordered... To teach the good news in the temple. Verse 21. The religious leaders convened. When the high priest and his associates arrived. They called together the Sanhedrin. The full assembly of the elders of Israel. And sent to, jail, sent to the jail for the apostles. Interesting story isn't it? So the high priests. Who don't believe in miracles. And they don't believe in angels. They're now uh, they've gathered with the, with the Sanhedrin. Now, that's another term that you hear, uh, and that's the ruling council. It's a large group of about 70 people, all leaders. It's like the Supreme Court and the U.S. Senate coming together, and they're going to make the decisions, and they're going to bring justice. So here's their deal. Okay, we're together now. You go get the prisoners. And so... Um, Religious leaders are confused, verses 22 through 24. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported. Huh, I wonder where they are. We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. That is going to be a problem. Everyone is doing their job. The guards are on duty. The doors are locked. No prisoners. Where are the prisoners? How did they disappear? Verse 24, on hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. They don't believe in miracles, they don't believe in angels, and they are worried about the impact of losing their prisoners. How will this affect their ratings? Will they continue to lose ground at the polls? Only time will tell. Verses 25 and 26, the apostles arrested again. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. So the apostles are obeying God's instructions from the angel. At that time, verse 26, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. So temple police go back to the temple and they arrest the apostles again. They are carefully 
and politically savvy in doing so. They try not to stir up the crowds, no violence. And here's the interesting thing. The apostles came peacefully, no arguments. Where did they learn this? Jesus, when he was arrested. This is how Jesus did it. Remember, Peter was the one who cut off the high priest's ear. Peter has changed. Peter's not going to do it like the old way. Peter comes peacefully. They brought the apostles. They did it without force. Peter writes later in 1 Peter chapter 2, Submit yourselves to the Lord for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Next slide. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, Peter uh, understood that if he was going to follow Christ, he needed to follow Christ in this way. When he was arrested, he would submit to those authorities. And Peter recognized that the emperor will not always be fair. Governing, governing authorities will not always be fair. And he said, we should submit to them for the Lord's sake. And our government or those over us may not always be fair, but we should submit. Now, there are times that we may want to protest. And we live in an amazing country that allows us to protest. And we can find ways to protest legally. And we may protest and we may get arrested. And that happened to the apostles for standing for what they thought was right. And we need to be just like the apostles if we want to protest. We need to be willing to go to jail for what we believe if uh, we think we're not treated fairly. And if we do this, and we can do this in a peaceful way. And there are all kinds of ways that we can communicate without being stupid, without being violent. Verses 27 and 28, the apostles, are, the apostles are accused again. The apostles were brought and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. So the, the Sanhedrin sat in a half circle. Think of this, 70 people in a half circle, high priests right at the center like me. And then the accused were placed right out here. And it was the whole design was to be quite intimidating. And... Uh, verse 28, we gave strict orders not to teach in this name. And by the way, the high priest didn't want to say the name of Jesus. We gave you strict orders. That was Acts 4. 
Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Two accusations. Accuse the apostles of filling all of Jerusalem with the teaching of Jesus. That's probably an honor. That's probably a good thing to be accused of. And then, this was a little risky, they placed the responsibility for Jesus' death on the Sanhedrin, the leaders of Israel. And the Lord knows they had major responsibility. They're not the only ones responsible. Romans have responsibility. The people have responsibility. But certainly the leadership of Israel has responsibility for the death of Jesus. Then in verses 29 through 42, defended by an unexpected advocate. The apostles will be defended by an unexpected advocate. Advocate, The highest principle, verse 29, stated by Peter. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. This is the most important concept. Peter gets it. Peter teaches it. God's will first. He deserves our highest allegiance. Uh, if you... D- Peter's saying, if you disagree with God, Peter's saying, we must obey God. And this is similar to what happened already in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John were put in prison. Let's go back and look at that. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John had been arrested. And the high priest said, what are we going to do with these men? They ask. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign. And see, they even got it. They, a notable sign means they got that there was, a, there was a miracle and that other people knew about it. And we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading, it's like a disease in their mind. It's, it's a bad thing for them. To stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Next slide. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. I like the way they said that. Okay, here's the choices here. You choose. You want to follow God, follow people. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard because we were eyewitnesses. We spent time with Jesus. We were there at the crucifixion. We saw the burial. We saw the resurrected Jesus. And he came and he talked And then we saw him ascended into heaven, and we have a responsibility. He said, you got to tell the truth about what you know. The, The real truth, verses 30 through 32, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on the cross. And so um, Peter replies, the God of our ancestors... Now, Peter is identifying with his Jewish heritage here. He's identifying with the nation Israel. The God of our ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of uh, Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Samuel, the God of David and Solomon, the God of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and all the prophets. This God, your God, our God, raised Jesus from the dead. That's pretty strong. Do you get it? To the Sanhedrin. Do you get it? 
the God of our ancestors did this. He raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior. Both of those terms are related to Messiah in the Old Testament. God is the one who exalted him, that he might bring Israel to repentance and to forgive their sins. God has a plan for Israel in this. Yes, God has a plan for the whole world, and he has a plan for us, but he also has a plan for Israel, and he wants Israel to repent, and he wants to forgive Israel's sin, the people, the Jewish people. We are witnesses of these things, verse 32, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. This is a God thing. It's a God movement. We must obey. You cannot stop God. And then there's an angry response, verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. They were livid. They wanted to have the apostles executed immediately. That's what they did for Jesus. They deserve the very same thing that Jesus got. Verses 34 through 39, now we meet the unexpected advocate. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel. Oh, a Pharisee. Not a Sadducee? Yeah, a Pharisee. The religious conservative. Not a priest. Not from the tribe of Levi. Gamaliel, Gamaliel, a Pharisee, does believe in angels. He does believe in miracles. And he does believe in the resurrection of the dead. Gamaliel was the most famous teacher of his day, the most famous. And he is the one who mentored the Apostle Paul as a Pharisee. He has a pretty big impact, but we don't have any clue that he ever came to faith in Christ. Verse 35, then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Stop and think. Your anger has clouded your judgment. And then he gives an illustration, uh, illustration number one, Thutis. Some time ago, Thutis appeared claiming to be somebody, like a Messiah. And about 400 men rallied to him. That was a significant response. But he was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. See? That's what happens. After him, verse 37, Judas, the Galilean, appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. There was a rebellion. He, too, was killed and his followers were scattered. Another example of rebellion that everybody in the audience knew about. The leader was killed and everybody dispersed eventually. It just ran out of steam. Verse 38, therefore... In the present case, I advise you. Here's the wisest man in the room. Leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. Just like all the others. Their leader is dead. If this is of a human origin, this is going to dissipate. It's going to run out of steam. Verse 39, but if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. So let's give him some space. Let's see what 
happens. Is this a God thing? If it is, no one will stop them. If it is, you will be fighting against God. That's not a good place to be, by the way. One of the passages that I remind myself all the time of is um, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And sometimes I get a little high and mighty and I get a real high opinion of myself and I'm reminded God is opposed to the proud. Right now, I'm trying to swim upstream against God, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives favor to the humble. You have God on your team, and you get God's strength when you're humble before him. If this is from God, you will not be able to stop him. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And then we find the apostles released in verses 40 to 42. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Well, they were kind of persuaded and kind of not. They just kind of wanted to get their their two cents in. The apostles were flogged. In the Jewish setting in the first century, that would be 39 lashes from a whip. And the old custom in in the ancient world was 39 because out of fear, 40 might kill them. So they practiced 39. The Jewish flogging was 39 Lashes across the open chest, excuse me, 13 lashes across the open chest, and then 26 lashes across the open back. Now, my question is, do you think that hurt? Twelve apostles were flogged, and they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, that's what they had done before. And two times already, they've already spoken in the name of Jesus, and they're not afraid of being flogged. They really haven't reversed themselves very far because what are the apostles left to do? And the Sanhedrin are going to challenge God. And the, the apostles are not supposed to speak in the name of Jesus. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of the suffering of, dis, of suffering disgrace for the name, the name of Jesus. They were rejoicing. They were full of joy because they had been counted worthy of suffering. That's kind of a theology of suffering. Are are we worthy to suffer for Christ? Are we worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus? And somehow the apostles experienced uh, joy, uh, reward, a sense of God's favor, a sense of God's presence because they passed this test. They were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' sake. Verse 42, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. The gospel continued to advance. In the temple courts, large groups, the apostles got up and proclaimed, preached the good news of who Jesus was. And they went, it continued house to house, small groups. And there they taught 
about the good news. And they had dialogue and they answered questions. And they did icebreakers and stuff like that. People came to faith in Jesus. A couple things here. Suffering for the name. Later, Peter gives a theology uh, for suffering. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. But how is it, to your credit, if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? You know, you go to jail because you disobeyed the law. Well, go ahead and suffer because you're not suffering for Jesus. You deserved it. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. This is a theology of suffering. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. I don't know if I want to follow in all those steps. Next slide. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. When Jesus was being treated unfairly and even tortured unjustly, he entrusted himself to the righteous one, the one that all justice can be rightly handled. Jesus suffered to give us an example to follow in his steps. Now, you know, I don't think we're supposed to intentionally place ourselves in the way of suffering. You know, oh, let's see, where can I suffer the most? No, I think as we follow Christ, whatever he wants us to do, as we follow and we face persecution or we face something really, really hard because we're followers of Christ, we should step in and entrust ourselves to the one who is totally just. That's our example. That's a theology of suffering. The other thing that I think we see from the apostles is that witnesses for Christ. This has been a really strong one. Acts chapter 1, verses, verse 8. So, we talk about this almost every week. Jesus told the apostles, you will receive power. Acts chapter 2, they did. When the Holy Spirit comes on you. When you placed your faith in Christ, you received the Holy Spirit you receive the same power available to them, available to you. And you will be my witnesses. That was, that's a, a prophecy and a command. You will be my witnesses. What does a witness do? They tell the truth about what they know about Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And then in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the theme of the book of Acts. The whole book fits right here. We're just going to watch it unfold. There are going to be witnesses for Christ in a lot of different ways. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. This is for us. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. The whole idea of reconciliation is we were way bent out of shape because of our sin. We did not have a relationship with God. And God, by sending his son Jesus, made it possible for us to restore that, rec- that relationship with God, to reconcile that relationship with God through Christ, so that we could be in relationship by believing in Jesus. 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now that's our ministry, that's our job, is that we're to take the message of Christ to our world and help people understand how they can be reconciled to God. That God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against us. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. The gospel has been handed to us. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. On the third day, he was raised again. And then he appeared to a whole bunch of people. That's the message of reconciliation. Next slide. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's our job, is to be ambassadors for Christ. We are his emissaries. We are his representatives. We are his hand and feet. You know, when we get to be involved and touch twice, that's an opportunity for us to be his hands and his feet to some people in our community that are under-resourced, people that I don't see every day. And we get to represent Christ. And when we serve in that way, we are Christ's ambassadors. If you serve, you don't have to preach to anyone. When we do good works, it impacts our world and produces goodwill in our world. And when we have goodwill, we can communicate the good news and people can hear it. So, I'd like to close and I'd just like to, as we pray this morning, um, I just want to think about some items that we talked about in the message. Let's, let's pray together. Father, as, um, as we think through the the message in Acts chapter 5, and we were reminded of things that grab our attention. I was thinking about the jealousy and how jealousy impacts our lives. And sometimes we envy other people for what they have. And we somehow feel left out and we don't feel like you are sufficient for us. And we don't believe that you are sufficient to provide for us. And uh, we end up not liking someone, feeling devalued, and we've got the wrong perspective. And just as you're sitting there this morning, is are you dealing with jealousy in, in a relationship? Because at times you put your values in the wrong place. You're putting... putting your desire to be happy above God's desire for you to be obedient. Father, I'm reminded too of um, when it comes to obedience, sometimes we forget to put your commands ahead of what others think and we respond to what others think first. And would you remind us to put your will ahead of what others think to put your will ahead of our will and Father when we face difficulties could we see them as an opportunity to grow
Are we willing to walk through trials and ask for your help and ask for your strength? And see them that through this you, you do work good. Can we trust you in that? And Father, lastly, I'm just reminded of um, the message in the book of Acts that we are to be witnesses for you, that we are to represent you well so that all people may have the opportunity to know you. Help us to live for you. Help us to represent you well. Help us to be ambassadors for Jesus. Not that we have to preach at everybody, but we can tell people what we do know. And we can be humble, and we can entrust the results to you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege to know you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Let's stand together. Next week we'll be in Acts chapter 6. The church comes across a huge practical problem. They're having this really, really large potluck. And it creates a whole set of problems, just like church. And so uh, we're going to look at that. And there's a lot of good principles in that, too. So uh, thanks for being here today. God bless you all. We're dismissed. His be the victor's name who fought the fight alone. Resplendent saints, no honor plain, his triumph was their own.